Yeah, man. Let's kill that bass head. Alright, let's do this. I'm on the air, we on the air, we got this pockets flow. It's me and Tony on the mics, we gotta let you know. Of current events, little gaming, sprinkling some entertainment. We stay humble, but our mom still thinks we're famous. Turn up the bass and baby, maybe let that magic flow. Our spoken word is all the things you really wanna know. Having a good time on the show, T Bows and Maddie G. Tune in and hit subscribe and join us on the FAP. Welcome everyone to the Freaking Awesome Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Bose, and sitting virtually across from me is my co-host, Matty G. Hey, hey. How you doing today, buddy? Oh, you know, still uh, short and handsome. Yeah, well, as long as you still got one thing. I tell you, if you grow tall, <laughs> then you've messed up our t- entire sequence of things. So uh, <laughs> We'll have to change our cover art. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Matty, we got a very fantastic guest on our show today. Uh, I feel like, unfortunately, he has lost a horrible bet or he listens to our show and uh felt really really bad for us uh, hopefully our time together with him uh definitely will enrich your lives and not degrade his in any way he was a publicist in 1970s and 80s for singers and bands such as prince billy joel and sticks uh, he has uh, written several books including his, the Lufus, lucifer principle as well as uh, a book about his experiences with michael jackson uh, he was a publicist for Michael Jackson and Cindy Lauper, Talking Heads, Lionel Richie, ZZ Top, ACDC, Simon and Garfunkel. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're very fortunate enough to have Mr. Howard Bloom. Howard, how are you doing today? Uh, doing extremely well. That's fantastic. Uh, wish the sun were out in New York, but uh, we do have a slightly raised sky down here. Do you? <laughs> It's not it's not much better up here either. It's pretty it's pretty doom and gloom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the beginning of fall, so it's true. Um, our sun is being stolen from us for another six months. <laughs> well, I mean, at least up here uh, we've got uh, some beautiful colors to look tip forward to uh, before all the snow comes down. So uh, it's uh, we we get at least a little bit of a glorious reprise before it gets horrible. So have the leaves begun to turn colors yet? Just started the other day. Aha, and we haven't started yet. Oh. So, Lord, let's hope we stay in a tropical fishbowl until the end of September. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people who I, I love snow for Christmas, but other than that, like, I don't snowboard and I don't really ski, so uh, it's useless to me. Uh, if anything, it's just I'm waiting for people to crash into me with their cars. So I, uh, <laughs> I would much rather it stay fall all year round if we could. My buddy's actually in Idaho, and he was saying that um, he had his wedding on a s- last Saturday and it was 96 degrees. And three days later when they were driving home, uh, it was snowing. Wow. I mean, so I was like, ha, ha, how? Free, free. You know what? Uh, I used to live out in BC and, uh, weather would always be very, very weird where, uh, it could literally rain down half the road and not on the other half of the line. So. Well, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and when you started to head for school in the middle of winter, uh, the uh, snow was up to your nipples, um, <laughs> and and if you wanted, you could walk on the snow drifts and stick your hand out and touch the gutters of the roofs because um, wow. the snow drifts were eight feet high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was and it was delightful. Uh, of course, getting indoors afterwards and unfreezing yourself was a half an hour of intense pain. <laughs> but aside from that, the snow was pretty amazing. Yeah, it's true. I, I often uh, lament to the fact that when I was a child, the snow was definitely a lot higher. I remember uh, living in Ottawa and uh, the snowbanks being almost twice my height. And uh, that wasn't when I was like three and four. So, you know, I was walking to school on my own and uh, thinking, wow, that is crazy. Like it'd be like a little ice tunnel. And uh, now we don't get anything close to that. So maybe, amazing. Yeah, maybe maybe with all this uh with everybody kind of being off uh, for for COVID or or reduce the amount of emissions in the air that uh, maybe we'll actually have a proper uh, winter again. Well, that would be neat. It's amazing when it snows in New York City because you can go out um, early in the day and there aren't any footprints on it. If you there, We've got a 580-acre uh, park um, near my home. And just to see that snowy landscape is amazing. And then there are the days when the uh, ice comes down, rain 
comes down at frigid uh, temperatures and coats the trees, and they're just coated with this crystalline stuff. Wow, just beautiful. It's beautiful. on my bucket list to see the Rockefeller Christmas tree. So yeah, mine too. It is super beautiful. I like one of my favorite things to see every every Christmas on television. <laughs> Well, we have to get past the COVID lockdown. That's right. To get to that point. <laughs> yeah. Canada's just not letting us go anywhere right now. They still keep the borders locked up nice and tight. And nobody wants us Americans anywhere because we've had more COVID deaths than uh, the leading two competitors combined. We've had more than France, Germany, Italy, the United Kingdom, and Spain wow. combined. Yeah. So we're uh, sort of the pariahs of the world right now. We are demonstrating exactly how not to handle <laughs> COVID-19. Right. <laughs> Americans got to be the best at everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you want to kill the maximum number of people, just imitate, imitate the United States. That's right. <laughs> All right, Matty G, shall we get into the news today? Yes. Uh, right. I My first one's funny. It made me laugh out loud when I read it. So right. I'm sharing it with you. Sounds good. Um, title is The Naked Car Wash. Go if on. showering at home simply isn't an option, why not cleanse yourself in a local car wash? An unidentified Australian man did just that around midnight. Uh, this was the last week of August. A little older, but I, I had to share. All right. After visiting Parkland's Car and Dog Wash, the business owner Jeff Bowen told local news that he went to work that day to find the water guns thrown on the ground. Uh, perplexed because that had not really ever happened, uh, Bowen decided to check the surveillance camera, and what he saw left him laughing. The camera captured a naked man with one hand over his private parts, grabbing the hose from the wall and handing it to his buddy, who was cell who was making a cell phone video. <laughs> the nude man's buddy sprayed the man with the hose as the man jumps, dives, and ducks as he's blasted by car cleaning chemicals. <laughs> The naked man is then chased by his pal, who throws the power washer down. Bowen said the chemicals are power on, powerful enough to break down grime and droppings from cars, but not made for human skin. <laughs> so I was I, like, e this sounds like something that I would probably do in my <laughs> early 20s, late teenage years. Yeah, I my, my first uh, thought on that was I really hope he didn't go for the hot wax. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, mine uh, isn't, uh, I think, as risky at that, but uh, just as just as interesting. Uh, this one actually comes from our friends down in uh, good old Florida. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's been a while since we've had a Florida news. So. Yeah, it has, actually. Yeah. Um, so the Polk, De uh, Polk County deputy responds to a call about an alligator in a shed. Uh, so a family was basically in their shed out back when they were trying to retrieve some items and uh, they saw uh, an alligator in the back. So they instantly called the police and I don't know why they don't call animal control. But anyways, um, and uh, they said that there's an alligator in the shed. Well, a deputy uh, Trexler from uh, the sheriff's office shows up uh, to the 911 call prepared to find the large reptile. He steps inside and then grabs it by the face and single handedly pulls it out. To find out that it's just a lifelike-looking pool toy. <laughs> um, the uh, the 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 basically the uh, the sheriff's office had uh, put a tweet out about it and uh, stated that he conquered the beast and even literally knocked the wind out of it. Um, they said, uh, "Tune in next time when he wrestles a pool noodle." Surprised so, they didn't shoot him for non-compliance. Right. Now, now the funniest thing is there are photos online about it, and it actually looks very real. Like, if it was just the head kind of poking out, like, it, I, I, you'd have suspected maybe because it is Florida. Um, it's just really funny because, like, you'd think maybe the owners knew that they had something in there like that. Dude, have you seen those remote control boats that are alligator heads? Yes, and I have. Peep, yeah, those are, and they're super lifelike looking. Mm -hmm. um, those are pretty cool. I think we should get one. <laughs> I don't think this is a bleedable up here as it would be down in, say, Florida. True, true, yeah. 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 All right, uh, have you got another one? I do, sir. Okay. This one this one I, I grabbed because it's, uh, this one was in Brockville, really close to us. Ooh, really? So, yes. Super local news. The, Title is Parrot Greets Home Intruder with Hello as Credit Card Stolen. A pet parrot's cordial <laughs> greeting wasn't enough to immediately thwart a suspected thief. 
Brockville police said a man entered a home Monday afternoon uh, through an unlocked door and took a credit card from a wallet that was nearby. The pair greeted the intruder with a hello, uh, police said on social media. The homeowner was alerted by the bird, but didn't pay much attention to him as, quote unquote, he isn't always a reliable source of information. (laughs) (laughs) However, an eagle-eyed neighbor uh, photographed a man leaving the home and police were contacted. On Tuesday, security cameras at a local grocery store caught the man using the card. Uh, Police identified and later arrested the man. Uh, A 33-year-old man was held in custody for a bail hearing facing charges of break and enter theft and using a stolen credit card. Wow. I I almost think that that parrot is pretty much as useless as my dog. (laughs) (laughs) It just is like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) And then nothing. Didn't say, yo, your wallet's being stolen. Like, I mean, if you can remember the words hello, you should probably say, hey, he's taking your wallet. <laughs> yeah. Mm, wow. uh, okay. So good. Yeah. Uh, I uh, my my last article. I do have a theft as well. Now this one was a little bit interesting um, and, and funny, but I feel like this falls under uh, theft blunders. So uh, down in North Carolina, there was uh, a young gentleman who, of course, uh, was buying cigarettes from the uh, the local pharmacy. And I guess down there, what happens is you have to present your ID. If obviously you don't look of age. So he presented his ID, and it was scanned by the computer, and um, he basically requests his cigarettes, and while the cashier walks away, he opens the cash, steals the money, and runs out of the place. And I'm like, do you you not see a problem with that? (laughs) You just basically gave him your address and everything, an ID, to which, of course, the police officers later picked him up and charged him (laughs) with that. Oh, my gosh. Ah. So I, I think they're, what was that? that? That probably goes to like a Darwin Award or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my Amazing. goodness. Yeah. All right, Howard, we're back to you now. Good. Yes. So <laughs> where should we begin? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, uh, Maddie G and I had, uh, were talking before you had called, and, and I had said that uh, I don't feel like in our brief short amount of time on the show that we even have time for I, it's like one of the things I don't even know where to start but uh we're, we're let's start off when you were young um okay. I, I was uh listening a little bit about your your history and your past and uh how um basically you decided to to uh try to understand or the the theory of rebel of relatively uh, relativity for a girl well basically I got into science I got into microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 10. And I learned two basic rules of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, mm-hmm. and look at things run under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then start reading two books a day. So by the time I was 12 and in eighth grade, um, I'd already accumulated a bunch of scientific credentials. Um, I had co-designed a computer that won some uh, science fair awards. I'd built my first Boolean algebra machine. I'd wow. met with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo to discuss Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And I'd been tutored by the head of research and development for the company that made the valves for the first plane to break the sound barrier and the first plane to get to the edge of space. And yeah, then all of, well, then a girl in my class, eighth grade, turned her eyes in my direction one day. And that had never happened to me before. And then she made eye contact, which is even more shocking. And she said, I told my mom that you understand the theory of relativity. And I didn't have the courage to tell her that I didn't. <laughs> so I jumped on my bicycle and I pedaled to the local library as fast as I could. And they gave me two, the two books they had on relativity. And I went home and I was reading the first one, which was all mathematical equations and very few words of English. And I have never understood a mathematical equation. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, eventually, uh, in desperation, realizing my mom was about to put me to bed and I still wouldn't understand the theory of relativity the next day, I turned to a little skinny book that was written by Einstein himself, not with collaborators like the other big fat one. Mm-hmm. And it was as if Albert Einstein reached out through the pages of the book, grabbed me by the lapels and said, schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it's not enough to come, off the, to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So when I was 12 years old, after two years immersed in science, 
um, Albert Einstein told me, uh, you want to be an original scientific thinker, you're going to have to become a writer, and not just any writer, a really good, delicious, scrumptious, amazing writer. So that became a, a new goal in addition to science, wow. um, becoming, becoming a writer. And at the same age, something really weird happened to me, and my bar mitzvah was coming up, and I didn't want to miss out on the presents, and I didn't want to miss out on the um, on the first party that I was ever going to be invited to in Buffalo, New York. Um, and I realized that I was an atheist, but I put that realization in some dark corner of my mind so I wouldn't blow the bar mitzvah. <laughs> and then it took two months to write uh, thank you notes for all the presents. And the high holidays rolled around. I'm a Jewish atheist. And my parents got me in a suit. I don't know how they did that. They got me in their big blue four-door Frazier automobile. They got me all the way to Richmond Avenue, which is where the synagogue was. And being an atheist, I refused to go any further. I really didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. So I was holding on to the car door frame. And my parents were trying to drag me up the street by my ankles. Um, and I had a sudden realization. If there are no gods in the sky, and I'm an atheist, so to me there aren't, and if there are no gods under the earth, and again, I don't believe in that either, there, there is something funny going on here. There are gods in this scene. The absolute passion with which my parents are willing to drag their firstborn child up the street like a sack of meat <laughs> is something really extraordinary. So the gods in this scene are inside my parents, and if they're inside my parents, they're inside of me too. Mm -hmm. So that began a quest for the ecstatic experience and how it feeds into the forces of history. Mm -hmm. um, and when I graduated from NYU, I had fellowships at four different schools in what's now called neuroscience. It didn't have a name back then. Mm -hmm. And um, I suddenly realized this is going to be like Auschwitz for the mind. I'm interested in the ecstatic experience. Um, and I will never be able uh, to get anywhere near it in my entire career because I'll be giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit. And how many ecstatic experiences, how many of the gods inside of us are you going to see come alive in those classrooms? Zero, absolutely zero. So I jumped ship and went into something I knew absolutely nothing about. I had grown up with, I loved music, but I was listening to Rachmaninoff and Bartok and Stravinsky, Beethoven, Mozart, not to popular music. But I had a chance to go into popular culture, and I figured that might provide me a periscope position from which to find the lands where the gods are, the lands where the gods inside of us come alive. And I eventually trucked, stumbled, and fell into rock and roll and founded the biggest, biggest PR firm in the music industry. And Help build or establish the careers of Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, um, Fern, um, Joan Jett, ZZ Top, uh, Sticks, a whole bunch wow. of people like that. And it was an amazing privilege. I mean, how many science people have you heard of who've been able to adventure in the land of the superstars of our time? Wow, for sure. Like, what what a, a, an amazing path that led you there. I mean, I, I kind of look back and think that if, if a girl in that grade turned and, and looked at me and said, do you know this? I would have just said, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> I like but, peanut butter. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, um, it, it, it's so funny that of all the things you had done before you had even gotten to that moment in life where, you know, you're looking at it and thinking – no, I don't know the theory of relativity. And and you could have easily said, but I've done this, 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 and this. But, right. but you're like, no, the challenge is now put there. I have to go learn it. Right. And the rock and roll thing was extraordinarily interesting. I was looking for the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. Mm -hmm. And I found it. Um, and more than finding it, I was sort of splashing down like a, an alien anthropologist from Mars who didn't know American culture or western culture at all mm -hmm. and the result was there was a whole bunch of ritualistic ways of doing things in the music industry yes. and everybody in the industry was attached to those things they in fact they didn't even see that these were imperatives that were hanging around in their skulls mm -hmm. um forcing them to do things a certain way 
And I had the privilege of coming in from the outside so I could look at the things, look at those things and pick the ones that worked and uh, avoid the ones that didn't work and invent my whole new systems. So I invented whole new ways to be do PR in the music industry and was credited with uh, reinventing PR in the music industry. And it worked because we, look, if you came to me and you were a prospective client, I gave you a little speech. I said, look, if you're coming to me expecting me to, to fashion an artificial mask for you, an image, and to sit here like a guy in a check suit with a cigar in his hand and say, with this image kit, I'm going to make you a star, then you've got the wrong publicist, and I'll send you to my best competitor, and I'll have you in his office in two hours. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. It's not an exchange of money. It's about an exchange of human soul. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to work with me, I'm going to make certain demands of you. You're going to give me six weeks to study everything you've ever written, every song you've ever uh, put together, um, every album cover, every interview you've ever done. And then I'm going to come out to wherever, whatever environment reflects you the most accurately. And we're going to sit down for anywhere from one day to three days without any managers, without any assistants, without any wives. Nobody in that room but you and me. And my job is going to be to find the gods inside of you. And what do I mean by that? You're up against an album deadline. You have to write a lyric. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You're sitting in front of a blank laptop screen. Well, you're absolutely certain you can never write another lyric again in your life. You don't know how you've ever written a lyric in the past. But on a reasonably good day, by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there's a lyric in front of you. And on an unreasonably good day, maybe once or twice in your life, that lyric feels so perfect that it feels as if it wrote itself for you. Well, I'm going to find the gods inside of you that wrote those lyrics for you. When you go on stage and it's a really good night, you see the eyes of the audience widening. You see their pupils dilating. Um, you see their faces melting. You see them coming together into a kind of collective energy blob. It's like a big amoeba. And you feel that amoeba reach a pseudopod out to you, reach an arm out to you. And you feel the energy of that audience, whether it's 700 people or 70,000 people, going through your body as if you're an empty pipe, going to some place around your head, being utterly transformed, utterly transmogrified, and then flowing back out through you again. And you see the audience of the pupils widening even farther, and you are even more hyped up. And you feel like you're having an out-of-body experience, that you're sitting on the ceiling watching all of this take place below you and watching your body being danced as if you were a puppet or a marionette. My job is to find the gods inside of you that dance you for 70 minutes in that performance on stage. And my job is to introduce the hello, how are you, fine, thank you very much, self of everyday life to those gods that are within you, that are dancing you on stage in the eyes of that audience. And it worked. It turned people like, uh, well, Michael Jackson would have been an authentic, I mean, uh, a totally honest star, a star whose every movement came from his very heart and soul, with me or without me. But um, this approach is one reason we understood each other so well. Um, with Prince, he was an unknown 19-year-old from Minneapolis when I started working with him and a person of ferocious dedication and ferocious energy. It helped make Prince an icon. It, these things helped make Michael Jackson and Prince the kind of icons that shape people's lives, um, that determine who they will be for the rest of their lives. And the same with John Mellencamp and with um, ZZ Top and Joan Jett and a whole bunch of others. And, and today we don't have icons who have that gut deep odds inside Mm -hmm. revelatory power for us. Instead, we've got absolutely terrific singers like Ben Harper, um, who just sings with all of his blood and guts, but his managers set him up for every ginger ale commercial he can possibly get and every automobile tie-in he can possibly get. <laughs> yeah. and, and the result is that the current generation of stars don't have that authentic soul, soul communication with their audience Mm -hmm. that you need, I mean, every generation needs those authentic, absolutely honest, soul-deep stars. It can 
attach itself to because they become the role models. You buy posters of them, put them up on your wall when you're 12 years old, yeah. and they're like trellises for a tomato plant. Those upright frameworks yeah. that tomato plants grow upward on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they become your role models. You grow on them. Yeah. Uh, they're in you for the rest of your lives. So we are desperately missing this form of soul-to-soul communication that is involved with becoming an icon. I agree 100%. Uh, it's 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 funny because I, I even see, I watch my kids growing up and they listen to a lot of the, the newer popular artists and I still don't feel like there's there's not a fan base like there used to be. It's like you said, there's no connection between the artist and and the listener anymore. Um, you know, like I, I remember, uh, even like you'd mentioned Michael Jackson, I, I remember uh, a lot of my childhood listening to Michael Jackson and, uh, the, the groundbreaking things that he did and, uh, just the, the, the passion in his music. And um, not to say that, you know, today's artists don't have passion in their music. It's just not the same. Like you just don't feel it like you did with the artists back then. Um, but it really sounds like you have found almost the mathematical equation of the human soul when when you're when you're looking at these people and you say i need to sit i need to study you i need to look at everything you've written and everything you've talked about uh it's like you you're you're pouring through the data and you know exactly how to bring this out of them and for that you have to use your intuition you have to use your own emotions um to understand that but there's something else um, once upon a time, God knows, in the 1930s or something like that, or in the 1920s, a kid named Conrad Lorenz in Germany um, was uh, hanging around. He and his girlfriend, he was six years old at this time, were hanging around on the banks of a river, and they saw a mother duck, and her ducklings had just come out of the nest. And they watched as those ducklings attached themselves to their mother and then for the rest of their lives swam around in single file after the mom. Well, Lorenz was just fascinated with birds. When he got older, he got the Max Planck Institute, which is the leading scientific institute in Germany, to buy his parents' fairy tale house in the forest. Uh, and he turned it into a research search station, which meant he kept an awful lot of birds. Yeah. So one day he was walking past a bird's nest, or past a nest of goslings. Um, on his way to the kitchen door. He'd just gotten off his bike, and he suddenly noticed these goslings that come tumbling out of the nest and were following him in single file. Well, those goslings stuck with him for the rest of their lives. Um, when he went into the kitchen, they went into the kitchen. When he sat down to work, they clustered around his feet and rested. Um, when, and there's this amazing picture in this book on, uh, on aggression by Conrad Lorenz. There are a whole bunch of geese, full-size geese, you know, four-foot wingspans, and they're flying in the famous V formation that geese use to migrate, except they're doing it four feet off the ground, which you've never seen before in your life. Yeah. And the point of the V up at the very head is a guy in a bicycle's head. <laughs> well, it turns out the guy on the bicycle is Conrad Lorenz, and these are the geese that grew up following him around. What's worse when Conrad Lorenz had guests, it was very, and when the geese were adolescents, when their sexual hormones had just begun to flow, it was extremely embarrassing because the <laughs> geese did not want to mate with other geese. They wanted to marry with someone who looked just like good old mom. And good old mom was Conrad Lorenz. No. <laughs> so they would try to mate with the guests that Conrad Lorenz would have over. It was hideously embarrassing. Well, that's called imprinting and it won con observing it won conrad lorenz a nobel prize what? well so what did i look for if you were prince and if you and i had uh locked ourselves in a back room at the shea theater in buffalo new york was where prince was rehearsing for his dirty mind store and i well in prince's case let's do a little bit more background here um i was told look i i I read all three trade music trade papers um, first thing Monday morning, and I saw this record shooting up the R&B charts, the black charts, mm-hmm. and I'd never heard of the artist before. And then I saw it go platinum, which is impossible because records do not go platinum from just being on the R&B charts. They might go gold, but that's about as far as they go. Yeah. And I still heard absolutely nothing about this artist. And then I got a call asking if I'd like to work with the artist. His name was Prince. 
and he was utterly unknown. And then I got a call after I said yes. I got a call from Warner Brothers Records, which had one of the smartest staffs in the record industry. And it was from somebody out on the West Coast. And she said, I know you just said yes to Prince, but you're not going to be able to work with him. He's absolutely impossible. We set up two interviews with for him out here in California. He said absolutely nothing to the first interviewer. Um, and he tried to strangle the second interviewer. Well, it just turned out to be that way. Um, when I flew up to Buffalo, which is where he was rehearsing for the Dirty Mind Store, ironically, that's my hometown, not his. I watched Prince and the Revolution rehearsing when they were finished. Prince and I found a room backstage. We locked ourselves in and we spoke from two o'clock in the morning until roughly six o'clock in the morning. And what I was looking for is Prince's imprinting points, mm -hmm. the moments where his brain had opened the way the brain of a baby goose opens and wrapped it around, around something that it would hold within it for the rest of, the, of, of his life, the way that the baby goslings uh, made somebody who looked like Conrad Lorenz a permanent part of what was attractive mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out that um, Prince, when he was five years old, uh, his dad was a jazz musician, and when he was five, his mom took him to see his dad rehearsing at a theater very much like the Shea Theater that we were sitting in. And that meant 500 seats were all pointed at the center of the stage, um, and a spotlight was pointed at the center of the stage. And Prince's dad was at a piano in the center of the stage, and Prince sat behind him were five of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen in his life. Well... For goslings, what you imprint on, your brain opens up at a certain point, it's just for an hour or so, and it looks for something that has certain specific characteristics, walking, basically moving at a certain speed. Um, and with humans, it's different. We look for something that has elements of intense attention and sexuality. Well, all those 500 seats pointed at the center of the stage, so that spotlight on his dad. Um, all of that was implied attention. And the five most beautiful girls he'd ever seen in his life, that was sex. So Kevin Cronin of REO Speedwagon, he imprinted on the age of five. I'm seeing Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show. So you, he saw an entire audience full of girls on their seat shrieking so loud that you mm -hmm. couldn't hear Elvis Presley. Yep. Well, that's attention and that's um, sexuality all wrapped on up into one nice bundle. And then Kevin had a section, a second imprinting moment when he was 15 years old, and he saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And it was the same thing. Mobs of screaming girls screaming so loud that the, you couldn't hear the Beatles music at all. But it was the leading television show in the United States at the time. And boy, the implied attention and sexuality was really heavy duty. So I went into this looking for your imprinting points. And um, then I would take my notes from an interview like the one with Prince that went on for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And I would arrange it in chronological order. So it told a story, wrapped, it sold, it told Prince's story in Prince's own words, um, but wrapped around those key imprinting points. Prince had a second one. When he was about 15 years old, his friend Andre Simone's mother had a finished basement, and she wasn't using it for anything. So Prince made a deal with Andre Simone's mother that he could use the basement if he got good grades in school. And he established a society that was very much based on a society I had helped establish back in the early 1960s. The movement I had helped establish is called the hippie movement. And Prince took one of our slogans, one of the hippie movement slogans, make uh, love, not war. And he made it a central tenet of this little mini society that he formed. Now, why would Prince need to form a mini society? He was approximately five foot one. Yes. One of the tiniest people you've ever seen. Um, I didn't realize that for the first three years I was working with him because he had such an extraordinary personality, such extraordinary charisma that sitting in a room with him, it felt like he was absolutely your size no matter what size you are. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're five foot one and you're growing up in a mixed neighborhood, a black and white neighborhood in Minneapolis, think of the way other kids are going to treat you. The boys are going to bully you mercilessly. So Prince set up an alternative society in Andre Simone's basement. 
based around doing anything that your sexual impulses told you to do and in the process preventing war. So that's where a song like Ronnie um, Don't Go to Russia comes from. He was genuinely trying to get Ronald Reagan not to make war by taking the sexual alternative. So imprinting points are the seats of our soul. It's like when you tie uh, the string for a balloon um, to a tree branch and or better yet to a spot on the ground and the balloon can flutter around in the wind in any direction it wants, but it's always attached to whatever you tied it to. Um, those imprinting points are like those tie down points and they determine the centers of your soul for the rest of your life. That's incredible. Well, so that's how you bring in science and use it along with intuition, with your own emotional depths, um, and put them, the two of them together and create what another one of my books calls saturated intuition. By the way, the name of this book is, uh, the, is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, A Search for Soul of the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. And it tells all of these stories. And one of the most important stories it tells is the story of Michael Jackson, because Remember, the first two things that grabbed me and brought me into science and made science my religion when I was 10 were the first two rules of science. The truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things from under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And Michael Jackson was the living incarnation of those first two rules of science. Um, rule number one, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, is the rule of honesty, uh, commitment and and passion um, about the truth. Rule number two, look at things right under your nose, is awe, curiosity, and wonder. Rule number one is courage. Rule number two is awe, curiosity, and wonder. Well, Michael had courage. He was willing to do absolutely anything necessary for the sake of his kids. Um, and he had a quality of awe and wonder that I had never expected to see from any human being ever in my life. I mean, the first time I met Michael, we were in Marlon Jackson's pool house. And a pool house is a little uh, two-story building. It's big enough to have one room on the first floor and another room on the second floor. And the brothers and I were all standing around the pool table in the middle of the room. The walls, by the way, were covered with arcade video games, which nobody could afford in those days. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nobody. And then there was a pool table in the center of the room. And the brothers had put me in the middle, and they were flanking me on the other side, and we were looking at T-shirts and jackets so that they could pick tour merchandise. And I was trying to explain to them, you try to put on the most amazing stage show everybody, anybody has ever seen, your tour jackets and your T-shirts have to be the most amazing anybody has ever seen. And then I heard the screen door opening. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I had read literally over a 1,000 articles on Michael. And every single one of them said Michael was a bubble baby. If you stuck out your hand to touch him, he would recoil in genuine fear. Oh. So I heard this, and I learned another thing. Remember, I didn't grow up with other kids. I grew up in a, a bedroom filled with lab rats and guinea pigs and guppies. Um, but somebody, when I was 19 years old, taught me that if somebody's entering a room that other people want you to meet, you walk over, you stick out your hand, you say, hi, my name is Howard, and the other person responds by sticking out his hand and saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. Yeah. Well, I walked over to the screen door. I stuck out my hand, even though every single article had told me that Michael would recoil in shock and fear. And Michael stuck out his hand, and he said, hi, my name is Michael. And his voice was a little softer than most people's voices. His handshake was not one of those, I'm going to crush every bone in your body and show you how much stronger that I am than you are. <laughs> yeah. Handshakes, not at all. Um, uh, but it was a normal handshake. And I said, look, I've got a press release to read you. Um, I need to get your approval on it. And Michael said, okay, let's go upstairs. So we went to the room upstairs, which was literally filled to the ceiling with keyboards and amplifiers. And Michael found an amplifier to sit on, and I found an amplifier to sit on. And I started to tell, I started to read Michael the press release. And after I got um, two sentences into it, I remember I had been serious about writing since I was 12. Mm -hmm. And I had edited the literary magazine at NYU when it won the two National Poets of Prizes, uh, two National Academy of Poets uh, Prizes, mm -hmm. and caused a major stir in the art community. So, 
my writing, I took very seriously. Michael listened to the first two sentences and his, he went, oh, and his body slumped a little bit. And I read another two sentences and he went, oh, and his body slumped even a little bit further. And when we got to the end of the press release, he said, man, that's beautiful. Did you write that? And I had, but nobody in my entire career had ever seen the artistry in a press release before. And no one else ever would. Then we went downstairs because we had an appointment with the art director from CBS Records, their record label. And um, the art director came in and she put five of the most gorgeous artist portfolios you've ever seen in your life on the pool table. They were hand-tooled cherry wood. They were hand-tooled leather. And they came from artists who were legends in the field of illustration. And she shoved the first um, of the portfolios across the table at us. Now, Michael and I were standing in the center, and the brothers were flanking at us on either side. My right elbow was against Michael's left uh, left elbow. My right shoulder was against Michael's left shoulder. My right knee was against Michael's right knee. And Michael opened the first page of the first portfolio just one square inch. And he went, oh, and his knees began to buckle. And he opened it another three square inches. And he went, oh. And his knees began to buckle a little further. And oh, 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 Michael Jackson was having an aesthetic orgasm of a kind I had never imagined could possibly exist. Right there at my elbow, at my shoulder, at my knee, and all of that body language was conveying itself through his shoulder, his knee, um, and whatever I've left out, his elbow. Um, it was an astonishing experience. It was the first or the second rule of science. Look at things from your nose as if you've never seen it before. Um, and then proceed from there. Come to absolute life. Um, are you still there? We've had some binking sounds on the phone. <laughs> no, okay. that's so, so much bink. to think about. It's like, wow. Uh, okay. So, so <laughs> those going. binks are innocent. This. Okay. So then... A few months later, I used to keep a little, my, my office was in Manhattan. It was on 55th Street and Lexington Avenue. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a two-story office with a spiral staircase. And I kept a little $19.95 red nylon knapsack behind my desk at all times with a spare shirt, uh, a toothbrush, a razor blade, and the very first laptop computer, the TRS-100 computer, mm -hmm. um, because I used to get calls for emergencies. And at four o'clock in the afternoon one day, I got a call saying, you got to be out here by 11 o'clock tonight out here being in L.A. Um, Michael's canceling his tour and you're the only one going to talk to. So I jumped on a plane, got out to L.A., um, took my rental car to the address I'd given. It turned out to be uh, the middle of a giant studio lot. And studio lots have buildings the size of aircraft hangars. Yeah. And when they are dark, it's a spooky sight. And all of them were mm -hmm. dark but one. And even that, though it had tons of lights in it, was this light was swallowed up by the space inside the hangar. And I stepped inside that hangar-like building, studio, and it was the Jacksons were her, re rehearsing um, for their tour on a 110-foot stage. Now, to realize what a 110-foot stage is, when ZZ Top decided to go screw you to the world and take Texas culture to the world. They'd always been humiliated about Texas culture, all Texans had mm -hmm. up until then. They built a stage, a giant stage, in the shape of the state of Texas, built at an angle so you could see its shape. It was 75 feet wide. Wow. The Jackson stage was 40% wider, uh, 110 feet. So I watched wow. as they rehearsed, and then when the rehearsals were over, we filed into a dressing trailer parked outside, and the dressing trailer had two banquettes of red vinyl seats opposite each other and a little banquette at the end right next to the door. And that banquette was the throne. Michael took the throne. The brothers all took the um, banquette on one side. I sat on the banquette on the other side at Michael's immediate left hand. And Michael began to explain two things. Um, why he was canceling the tour and why the tour had been getting such bad publicity. Um, there were uh, lead sheep in the, what called itself the Rock Crit Press Elite, the Rock Critics Elite, um, who were saying that this tour is going to be a total catastrophe. 
that the um, uh, the stage, nobody we know, he said, we know everybody in the music industry, and nobody we know has been hired to do the stage, so the stage is going to collapse. Um, nobody we know has been hired to do the sound, so the sound system is going to electrocute the performers. Nobody that we know has been hired to do those four- and five-story high lighting towers that you use for an outdoor concert. So those lighting towers are going to collapse on the heads of the audience and kill people. And no one we know has been hired to do security. So there are going to be gangs running up and down the aisles with knives, and you don't dare take your children to these concerts. Well, Michael started to explain. First of all, he explained something I already knew, that God had given him the gift of this astonishing degree of awe and wonder. And because God had given him that gift, it was his job to give that gift to his kids. And when he was describing this, and we'll go more into what he was describing in a minute, I had the first visual vision of my lifetime. I've had about five visions. Every single one of them has come true. But in Michael's case, it was a visual vision. And I saw Michael's ribs as golden gates. And I saw those ribs swing open. And I saw inside of Michael's chest 10,000 kids. And Michael said, look, a year and a half ago, I started planning this tour. I wanted to give kids the same quality of awe, wonder, and surprise that I get. Um, so I hired the best staging people, the best sound people, the best lighting people, the best security people. And I made them all sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, in other words, he made them all sign to secrecy. Why? Because he wanted the tour to come as a total surprise. He wanted the staging to come as a total surprise. So kids would get that same quality of all wondered surprise that he got out of looking at illustrators' portfolios or listening to my press release. But he said, my brother Jackie is the best dancer in the world. He's the best dancer I have ever seen in my life. And my brother Jackie has a bone chip in his knee. And I knew that because four weeks earlier or five weeks earlier, I'd flown to L.A. and I had organized the press conference for the doctors who did arthroscopic surgery on Jackie's knee. And Michael said, we expected his knee to be better in time for the tour. It's not going to be better. For, uh, it's not going to be better in time for the tour. So I have to put the tour off until Jackie can be on stage with us. And um, I tried to explain to Michael how deeply the credibility of the tour was being hurt, and how if Michael postponed the tour date, the opening tour date, that parents would believe that every single one of these negative rumors about the tour was true. It would make the tour look totally amateurish. And then parents would be able to bring their kids yeah. to Michael Jackson mm -hmm. concerts. And Michael spoke with the power of Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea because he was utterly and completely committed to his kids. And again, the quality of all wonder and surprise. But Sometimes I can be prophetic, too, and I knew absolutely the truth of what I was telling him. And when it was all over, Michael said, okay, we'll do the tour. But that, those two confrontations, one was my introduction to Michael being the living incarnation of the second law of science. Look at things for an order in your nose as you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Uh, meeting number two about canceling or not canceling the tour showed me just how astonishingly astonishingly powerful Michael's commitment was to his kids. That's a rule of science, number one. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. Commitment. Wow. So in this book, I try to give you a sense of who Michael Jackson really was. Starting in the 1990s, when I was sick in a bed, I was sick in a bed for 15 years, um, Michael started to get these sexual attacks, these sexual smears. Mm -hmm. And they happened, so far as I can tell, for a simple reason. I had another client named Billy Joel, and Billy loved his motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And one day, Billy was motorcycling out on Long Island, which is where he lives. And Michael uh, and Billy was uh, barreling down the road at the speed limit, 45 miles an hour, coming to an intersection. And he had a green light. Now, what do you do when you see a green light? Keep on Keep going. going. Yep. But what does that mean for the driver who is perpendicular to you, who's at right angles to you? She 
has a red light. And what is she supposed to do? Stop. She's supposed to stop. Yeah. Well, Billy was going through, uh, barreling toward the green light, and uh, the car was perpendicular to him. didn't stop for the red light. It went straight through the signal and tried to make a turn to the left. Mm. Billy tried to put on his brakes, and there was no stopping distance left. So his motorcycle slammed into the car. He flew over the car and landed on the other side. And the driver, a 27-year-old woman, was hysterical. She thought she had killed this anonymous guy on a motorcycle. And she ran around her car to see if she could help. It looked like he might lose his left hand. He was uh, right hand. He was medevaced to Lenox Cell Hospital in Manhattan. And they had to work very hard to save his hand. Now, if Billy had lost that hand, Billy Joel writes a song like Piano Player for a reason. Mm-hmm. He is most alive when he is on stage pounding on the keys of his piano for an audience. And if he had lost his right hand, he would have lost his ability to have that kind of experience, and he would have lost a national treasure. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, while he was being saved, the uh, woman must have gone to an attorney, and the attorney must have said to her, look, um, you don't understand who you've uh, had an accident with here. He's a superstar. Um, he needs to do everything he can to keep negative headlines from happening. So if you sue him, after all, remember, he hit your car. You didn't hit him. Mm-hmm. Um, if you sue him, he's going to have to settle out of court to keep you quiet. So that woman made $250,000 off of nearly killing Billy Joel. And that's how it works with superstars. A superstar is a sitting target. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of those moms whose kid has made friends with Michael Jackson, a couple of things you have to understand. First of all, Michael Jackson's bedroom is not a private place. You're accustomed to privacy in your bedroom. I'm accustomed to privacy in mine. But Michael Jackson's been a star since he was a kid. Mm -hmm. And his bedroom has never been a private place. When Lyle Ritchie, another one of my clients, was going over to Michael's house to write the lyrics for We Are the World, you know, the charity song, Mm -hmm. um, with Michael. Where did they do it? They did it in Michael's bedroom. Where? They did it on the floor. And at one point, Lionel, whose head was about two feet off the ground and was busy uh, passing lyrics back and forth with Michael, all of a sudden felt something staring at him from eye level, two feet off the floor. And he turned his head to the right very, very and what did he see? Uh, muscles. Michael Jackson's boa constrictor. Um, tried to evaluate whether he'd make a good hors d'oeuvre before lunch. <laughs> uh, and so that's the nature of Michael Jackson's bedroom. So when Michael, and remember, when you were a kid, you had your first sleepover. Yep. It was a wildly ecstatic experience. Yeah. You were talking all night long. You were still talking when the sun came up. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Michael never had a childhood like yours and mine, although I never had a childhood either, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> um, Michael never had a childhood. And I have a friend named Doc Panksap, who was the leading researcher on human emotions, and he and baby rats play. So he took a bunch of baby lab rats and he isolated them so they couldn't play during their childhood. And when he put them back together, it was as if the lab rats had experienced play deprivation. Um, they needed to get that same amount of play out somehow or other, even if they were past the point of childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how Michael was. He never had a childhood. So childhood became very, very important to him. That's why he was so dedicated to his kid. And he never had the kind of normal privileges of sleepovers that other kids did. So he would invite kids over to have sleepovers in a bedroom that was a public place from the get-go. Now, if you're one of the moms um, who, whose kids Michael has become friends with, at first you think it's the greatest thing in the world, and you're wildly ecstatic. Mm-hmm. Then, if you're an, there are unstable women who cannot make a living or do not bother to make a living mm-hmm. and who want other people to give them money to continue to survive. Yeah. And the first woman who came up with a clever idea of suing Michael for sexual improprieties with her kid got $23 million in a settlement. Wow. What do you think that does to all the other mothers um, whose kids spend time with Michael Jackson? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a serious motivator. Yeah. So you and I will never know, including me, we will never know whether 
sexual proprieties were for real or were false. I believe yeah. they were false, but that's a belief. Yeah. I, I wasn't there. I can't tell you. I wasn't in those bedrooms mm-hmm. um, at that time. But the odds are very good that those accusations are all false. Yeah. Plus, there's one more line. There are two more things in the book that you have to know. One is, um, Einstein Michael Jackson, in the search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll, says that if you love Michael Jackson, even despite all of those accusations, that you understood something about Michael Jackson that no one who has ever written a book about Michael Jackson has ever understood. You understood his essential goodness, his overwhelming, almost saint-like goodness. His, again, the qualities of awe, wonder, and surprise and commitment to his kids um, that we talked about a minute ago. And the second thing you have to realize is this. Back in 1954, um, every sports physiologist on the planet knew that it was physiologically impossible for a human being to run a mile in less than four minutes. And that med student in England and a med student friend of his got together and started analyzing his running to spot every move that wasted the tiniest amount of energy and get those energy wasting moves out of his um, uh, bodily vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, this guy um, beat the four-minute mile. And since um, Roger Bannister was his name, and since Roger Bannister beat the four-minute mile, it's become normal for every major international competitive runner to break the four-minute mile. As of the latest update of the Wikipedia article on the four-minute mile, um, 1,800 people have broken the four-minute mile since then, even though the experts said it was physiologically impossible. What Roger Bannister did for the four-minute mile, Michael Jackson did for the qualities of awe, wonder, surprise, and utter and complete commitment. Mm -hmm. And if only we can understand the extraordinary level to which Michael took these things, a level I never expected to see in my life because I never had been able to imagine that such a thing could exist. It could expand the uh, the envelope of human perception. It could expand the envelope of human possibility, just the way that Roger Bannister expanded the audience or the envelope of human possibility. So understanding who Michael Jackson was and what he really was all about can be very important. It can be a gift to the entire human race. And in Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, I try to show you, I try to make you feel viscerally just what Michael was and how extraordinary he was. Why? Because if you're 12 years old and you're reading this book, that can be the trellis on which you grow. Mm -hmm. And there's another experience that I need to tell you to understand just how important I think Michael was. Um, I, when I was uh, heading the public and artist relations department for the Gulf and Western's 14 record companies, one of our record companies uh, had a guitarist named Bill Chinnick. And there was nothing terribly special about his songs. There was nothing terribly special about his vocals. But there was something really unusual about his guitar work. And one day, uh, he was playing a club in New Jersey. And he was doing what he usually did on guitar. And there was a little old man in the audience. And when everybody else left, the little old man stayed there. And then the little old man came up to the stage and said, Son, how did you do that? And uh, Bill Chinnick responded that, sir, I grew up listening to Les Paul. And I sat there in front of my record player for three years, practicing and practicing and practicing. It was very hard. Mm-hmm. And finally, I got to the point where I could play like Les Paul. And the little, little old man said, son, I am Les Paul. Don't you realize <laughs> I invented multi-tracking? Wow. In other words, Les Paul on his records, it took eight Les Pauls to make what Bill Chinnick thought was one Les Paul. But given that example of uh, what he thought was one Les Paul, mm-hmm. built, and it took a lot of work, but finally Bill Chinnick was able to live up to that quality of guitar work. He was able to play a blizzard of notes. And by the way, Les Paul then said, can you come over to my house and show me that again? <laughs> Which Bill Chinnick did. Wow. So... And so when someone comes along, like Roger Bannister or like Michael Jackson, 
uh, and becomes the trellis on which people grow, becomes an icon, then other people can start with the standard that that person ended up with and move on from there. Mm-hmm. And in some tiny number of cases, become iconic themselves and become new landmarks for human possibility. Again, expand the boundaries of human possibility and expand the boundaries of human perception. And that's the power I think Michael Jackson has, if only we understand him right. And this book does everything in its power um, to get you to feel Michael Jackson in your very chest, in your ribs, in your arms, in your legs, and especially in your sense of one one. Yeah. Now, I, first of all, Howard, I got, I got to mention, uh, I'm I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan. I always was. Um, I, uh, of all the things I've read, of all the things I've seen, I still, deep down, I cannot believe that he would do any of the things he was accused of. Uh, I feel like you're right. There's a lot of people that saw this man who was a very good and kind person, took advantage of the situation, and uh, and then things just started snowballing from there. Um the, I, I feel like it, it's kind of like how you had said it can't be done or, it, you know, everybody wants to prove that it can't be done. I feel like it was one of those things that people just couldn't believe that there was someone out there that was that kind. And and because allegations would start flowing, people think, well, he's he's rich and he's famous and he's beyond reproach that that. Pete, that he could do something like that. And and essentially, yes, everybody could do something like that, but I don't feel like he was the person to do it. Um, and and it, it's it's kind of unfortunately, it's very disgusting uh, that, that people would find that it is uh, so easy to believe things like that considering the amount of things that he did for other people. And uh, so it's, it's very, very sad. Um, well, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um... Oh, God, what was I going to tell you? I mean, basically, to me, he felt like a saint or an angel. Mm-hmm. He did, he felt beyond the level of human yeah. that we've ever had on this planet before. And it was so wonderful to see it. It was so wonderful to see that possibility yeah. um, in, inherent in him. But the something to realize is that Michael spent 50 years on this planet. Mm-hmm. For 25 of those years, he was becoming Michael Jackson. For 25 of those years, he was dangling on the cross. And there's no way a person who was so utterly deserving um, should ever have been crucified, tortured Mm. like that, Mm -hmm. ever. So it was a waste of one of the most powerful phenomena that evolution or God or whatever you happen to believe in Mm -hmm. has ever put on this planet. Yeah, agreed. but the book is there too, in uh, for a lot of reasons. The book tells you the stories of um, about twenty-seven of my most intense relationships, soul diving and finding the souls and the guys inside. Um, people like Joan Jett and people like Queen, um, people like Bob Marley. But the most important story is the Michael Jackson story. Just amazing. Uh, we would love 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 to go over more and obviously like we had said originally there were so many questions that we had uh we were rounding out actually the the amount of our maximum time that we have um so uh we will have to forego our 20 questions this time's around but we would love uh-huh. to actually have <laughs> you back again uh, yeah because there are so many artists that you have worked with that that there are just even more questions i would love to know more about billy joel and i would love to know more about peter gabriel and, and others that you have worked with uh, so hopefully uh, you would like to come back and and join yes, us. Yes, absolutely. And, Just uh, talk to talk to Eileen Shapiro. I will, and and she'll set it up. And it was wonderful to get to talk to you. And hopefully I'll see you again soon. For sure. Now before you go, do you have uh, any social medias or anything that you would like to plug, or where people can get a hold of your book, or just for the books? Just mm-hmm. look at Howard Bloom. B-L-O-O-M, like the flowers that bloom in the spring, mm-hmm. on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, for um, information and lots and lots and lots of articles, um, strange articles, I mean articles by me, which mm-hmm. are all very strange, yes. um, go to howardbloom.net um, to follow me on Twitter. It's Howard X Bloom. And to follow me on Facebook, which is really the best place because there we can have a conversation. Wow. Um, 
uh, just go to Howard Bloom. Excellent. Uh, I think it, yeah, it's Howard Bloom. There's an overflow page. I have 5,000 people, and that's the maximum Facebook allows you. Yes. <laughs> but I've got a, an overview page or, or an overflow page called something like uh, Howard Bloom Books. Okay. So if people can't get in there, they can hopefully get into the other one and, and drop you a, a question uh, if you're out and looking and, and listening to the uh, to the listeners. Right. And, and I answer everything. Oh, wonderful. Even better. Wonderful. Well, again, Howard, thank you very much for giving us uh, some of your time. We are definitely going to have you back because we have so many more questions. Uh, and uh, we really, really, really appreciate you being on the show. Well, I appreciate it, too. So have a good night, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks. Sounds great, Howard. Thanks. Thank Take you care. so much. Take care. Uh-huh. Okay, bye. Bye. So this is a good time for us to pitch our social media. You could get us on our website. Thefap.ca. On uh, Twitter. Is the Fap 4 You can get us on Instagram. Is the Fap Podcast. Don't forget our Facebook. The Freaking Awesome Podcast. And uh, you can always reach out via email. Thefappodcast at gmail.com. I'm on the air. We on the air. We got this podcast. Ah, not again. What a choice.